a cancer cell can't be honestly seen as an evil thing. It's just executing a set of instructions, trying to replicate, trying to form and provide some sort of service to the body. It's only missing one instruction, and that instruction is when to stop. Nevertheless, while you can think of this as having good intentions, it is one of the greatest killers of man. In the same way, those in our institutions who have quote-unquote good intentions, who seek to change the world and make it better, but have no limiting principle, have no tie to reality, and have no competency to execute, shouldn't be looked at in a forgiving way. They shouldn't be looked at as any less damaging than the equivalent of a virus or a saboteur. In fact, it is a technical statement, not an exaggeration, to say that they are the late-stage cancer of our institutions. Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus, demystifying politics, media, and culture for all who seek a rational way out. Today, we're bringing up a point that, in my mind, was obvious, which I've touched tangentially on quite a few number of episodes, dating back to Lebanon's sectarian nightmare is a warning for the West, all up until more recent episodes. In it, I talk about, for one thing, the double helix dynamic, the dynamic in which establishment members of one party benefit from propping up extremists in the opposition. I also talk about the nature of corruption and institutional erosion, and I thought the implication to tie all of this together was something that you can do in a straightforward way. However, what I've seen with many explanations and many questions, some of them from listeners of the show, is that this tie and its devastating consequences are actually not at all obvious. So that's exactly what we'll be diving into today. First, why do I choose the metaphor of cancer? Well, it provides two very clear traits, both of which I talked about in the introduction. One is the idea that good intentions can be destructive, possibly even more destructive than those with malicious intent. Of course, if a cancerous cell was detected by the body's immune system, detected and classified as malicious, then it would not have nearly the potential impact that it does in the current day. In the same way, the veil of good intent, the veil of someone who is superficially on the side of an institution or on the side of the other people there, while holding extremist views, while lacking competency, and while lacking an ability to self-correct if they make a mistake, can be equally as damaging. But let's bring this out of the realm of metaphor and into the realm of reality. One excellent example is, of course, the New York Times. And in fact, there are journalists in the New York Times who are still serving a good job. I'm not saying that you should distrust everything that comes in it, just as a cancer patient is not completely full of cancer cells. Instead, what's happening is that an increasing drain of resources, 
repellent of talent, and destruction of public images is occurring due to the uncontrolled spread of both quote-unquote well-intentioned but incompetent ideologies and individuals. Some of this includes explicit anti-vax conspiracy theories propagated through the Russian government and targeting African Americans, which has been propagated by the columnist Charles Blow. Similarly, repeated fabricated stories from a vast collection of writers, most notably in recent news, Taylor Lorenz, but also in the past of even larger names such as Kara Swisher, have resulted in widespread incompetency in the area of covering technology overall. What this means is that even the more competent tech journalists are still having to cope and correct with the debt that has been taken on by this incompetency. If there are already falsehoods that you need to correct, then that's less time that you can spend actually improving and actually creating better research for the job. Finally, the collapse of public trust. Because racial conspiracy theories and adjacent ideologies have taken a hold at least in some sections of the paper, this calls into question the objectivity of the entire source. Of course, it's too easy to jump to the part and whole fallacy, which is why I included the bit up at the top. Most importantly, there can still be very successful and very accurate reporters in the New York Times. The problem is, how do we know who is who? One solution is simple, individuation, looking at each reporter's track record, and that's actually the solution that I recommend if you have enough time. But that's a big if, and it's much more convenient in order to go to a source knowing that there is going to be collective reinforcement of a higher standard. That, in essence, is what journalism is all about. But, much like the metaphorical nature of cancer, if there is failure that continues to spread, metastasize, and be a drain on resources and power within the institution, regardless if they are trying to take it down intentionally or not, then there is a significant undermining of the overall quality, and those who are being dragged down with it certainly have my pity. That brings us to our second important trait, replication. A cancer cell is characterized by uncontrolled growth. That is exactly how tumors actually form, and in many cases, eventually kill. The institutional parallel for this is an undying hunger for power, and a contagiousness of an ideology. We've already talked about misinformation spread, and how these conspiracy theories can gain access to institutions through various psychological flaws and political biases. However, what has not been well documented is how they spread through institutions. This is for fairly good reasons. Most institutions don't reveal their internal communications for both legitimate and possibly malicious reasons. The legitimate is of course that they don't want competing institutions to know their plans for the future. And that's perfectly understandable. The more malicious interpretation would be that they don't want the public to know their long-term agenda. With various leaks 
that have been becoming increasingly prominent, it seems like both of these are factors. Of course, there have been various cases, such as Donald McNeil, such as Mike Pesca from Slate, and other journalists from lesser-known publications that have been constantly harassed, that have been harassed and targeted by fellow members of their institution, often based on a far-left ideology that has ties to racial conspiracy theories. Of course, the standard caveat applies. These are only individual cases, and until someone compiles a mass study of these, which also looks at possible other causes of internal harassment, other causes of firings, we won't have more statistical evidence to deal with. So, it's the best we've got. What these leaked communications and events tell us is that there is an increasing ability for a small gang of committed ideologues to exercise outsized power over an institution. This is based on an incentive game that we've already covered. There's more interest in preserving the internal power of various officials, which can be targeted by these harassment campaigns, than there is in preserving integrity of an institution or in protecting a subordinate who is otherwise innocent. Another excellent example of this phenomenon is with the Liz Cheney challenge. Cheney, the third ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, is a figure heavily opposed to Trump and representative of the legacy Republican Party. She is, of course, the daughter of former Republican Vice President Dick Cheney, who is most known for pushing the war in Iraq and other similar militarism, many of which are now widely condemned. This opposition to Trump includes a vote for his impeachment, the condemnation of the January 6th riots, and a direct tie, according to her, between these riots to Trump himself. A response has been met with various censuring, votes of confidence, which she has until now still survived, as well as a challenge to her role by Republican Elise Stefanik, who, up until the Trump era, was a fairly moderate or libertarian candidate, often voting towards the left with regards to issues like immigration. However, what her challenge represents is that all those who are in allegiance with Trump particularly on the issue of the election itself, gains his favor and a possible place in the higher echelons of the Republican Party, regardless of whether she was in alignment or still is in alignment on policy grounds. What this shows is that often these activist coalitions don't necessarily depend on ideological consistency. You can see the exact same thing occurring particularly in the corporate setting on the left side of the aisle. Instead, the binding factor is the incentive game, is the quest for power, especially within one particular institution. Question is now, what ties all of this together? What generating functions create the similarities between the Republican White House and the state of the party to these various corporate campaigns and institutional erosion? The answer is simple. Insular activism. Insular activism 
is a self-destructive and delusional act that not only hurts those around them, but also hurts the people who practice it themselves. That is actually a pretty strong statement, so I'll step back and give a bit of context. 1. What do I mean by activism? Well, activism is converting utility into political influence. This aligns with most of the common definitions of activism, and examples such as going out and campaigning for a candidate, uh, trying to run a social media campaign, organizing events, donating, etc. All of these are forms of activism, and some of them, in my opinion, are just fine. Going out and knocking on doors during election season, donating to a candidate who you support, those things are fine. Those things generally happen in the public space, and they generally help to influence people who are on the border, who are deciding between which candidate to vote for, or who may not have voted in the first place. All of that is fine, and it doesn't create some of the self-destructive incentives that we talked about earlier. To specify further what I mean, I included an adjective, insular. That is, activism that takes place in a pre-existing bubble. This bubble might be an ideological bubble, it might be a social media group in which activists gather and actively push each other towards more extreme ideologies and radicalization. It could be the setting of a business in which private incentives, including trying to maintain a job, including trying to keep a corporate environment, can lead to power-grabbing dynamics and the exact incentive games that we described at the beginning of the show. What makes each of these settings similar is that it's a closed loop. It is a community or a group where the internal influences are stronger than the outside, and if there is an ideological influence in one direction, it is incredibly easy to compound and become extreme. This is further worsened by effects that I talked about in previous episodes, including confirmation bias, the tendency to prefer beliefs that you already hold even if the evidence contradicts them, and the geographic polarization that often creates these polarized institutions in the first place. There's a strong psychological difference between moving someone towards someone who is completely moderate, who doesn't really care much about politics, and generally alternates between one party and the other, towards someone who is slightly leaning left or slightly leaning right. There's a strong difference between that and moving someone further and further along the polarization line. And it becomes increasingly more difficult to go in the other direction, to de-radicalize people, because the more precepts that they take that distance themselves from reality, as many of these ideologies and the conspiracy theories that they often feed into do, the less the realistic evidence that is in front of everyone's eyes are going to affect them because they simply hold different premises that are not based on reality. And when those premises conflict with evidence, confirmation bias often lets those premises win. Then, insular activism is the confluence of three things. The tendency of polarized subgroups to further polarize themselves and radicalize themselves, 
the tendency for incentive games to recruit those who are seeking internal power instead of for improving the institution, and the one-way function and disconnect that confirmation bias creates that makes it increasingly difficult to reach these people with factual evidence. This confluence in incredibly influential institutions such as political parties, universities, or media on both the left and the right can be a unifying notion of what is happening to the institutions right here and right now. This also creates a further compounding effect with what has been referred to as the quote-unquote trust doom loop, in which the legacy branding of an institution that has previously been well served to the public is corrupted by these insular influences. This creates an environment in which honest actors are less likely to want to join and contribute, further leading to more people who are seeking power or who are already part of the corrupt ideology. It is a feedback loop that plugs into itself and becomes increasingly difficult to reverse the further along it gets. Now, the best solution is actually straightforward and we've seen some companies such as Coinbase and Basecamp, two technology companies, as well as local governments and other types of businesses actually taking this easy step, which is ban insular activism. Usually, they don't state it in such explicit of a terms. They say, we don't want to avoid conflict in the workplace, or we want to avoid uh, discussion of politics, we want to avoid misdirecting the company towards something other than its original mission statement. These are all good ways to phrase it, but I think there's a benefit in the education to the public, if not to the company itself, to explicitly talk about the incentive games that occur. And I think if there's that understanding of what insular activism does to an institution, then these will become much more widespread actions. In fact, it's a situation where a bit more optimism is once again prescribed, because it really is quite a straightforward step to take for the institutions that have not yet gone too far down the path. And there's an extreme upside for business leaders to actually make these types of decisions, particularly when there is an emerging market for this and that the employees who want to get down to work, who want to avoid many of those influences, particularly in a high competition environment such as technology, are going to flock towards some of these companies. The question might arise though, what happens when you do want to change an institution? What happens if there is something fundamentally wrong with the actions that are taking, possibly that are directly in conflict with its original mission statement? Well, one is to provide a chain of command through factual evidence and to make that your organizing principle. Of course, this is always an ideal. There are going to be some people who ignore factual evidence, even overwhelming factual evidence, and that there are going to be others who take it too far and mischaracterize the change that actually needs to be made. However, maintaining a commitment to that standard of evidence, particularly when trying to take it to a higher level, particularly when presenting it to the board 
or some other type of control structure, having that enshrined as the main method of consideration can be one important step forward in avoiding insular activism that is completely baseless, which is the vast majority of it. This isn't to say that some of the insular dynamics that occur can't occur with factual evidence. Of course it can, but quite frankly, I see it as much less of a problem if there's an increasing concern and insular group dedicated to, for example, pandemic prevention, which actually has factual bases for why it's a significantly threatening problem, instead of the existing conspiracy theory-fueled narratives. Also, just looking at an objective standard, there are very few, if any, organizations that have succumbed to an insular activism of pandemic preparedness. There is very little reason to think that some of these factual mechanisms are really a problem in this case. Instead, they're almost entirely based off of, once again, these conspiracy theory adjacent, if not conspiracy theory themselves, ideologies, as well as a heavy emphasis on individual cases, which I've already talked about as being incredibly misrepresentative of a country's problems as a whole. The question also arises of what can be done about institutions that are in later stages of this effect, that are partially or fully captured by these insular incentives. In the case of those who are fully captured by the insular incentive, I think seeking an alternative institution of replacing it outright and letting the distribution naturally catch up will ultimately be the quickest and possibly the only solution. It is simply more work to try to rout out the corrupt insular individuals instead of just building a new company or a new institution from scratch, with some notable exceptions. The major one is universities, and while there have been some other projects in order to try to replace it, such as Lambda School, the legacy pipeline and the coordination with public schools is often the major effect here. That being said, the solution in the long run might nonetheless to replace these institutions because they're even further entrenched than other institutions we would consider to be of similar importance. There is another question of government-funded institutions, those that are ideally supposed to be in service of the public, and nonetheless end up occasionally being captured by these insular influences, which by definition are much more extreme and unrepresentative of the public. There have been certain steps that have been taken in the United States in order to try to explicitly ban certain types of movements, certain types of activism, certain types of ideologies from being taught using public dollars. I am still ambivalent to the step as it is often much more partisan than simply calling out the incentives and preventing this type of activism from occurring as a whole. Of course, it's understandable that it's much more difficult to specify a broader range of incentives, where enforcement might have a greater cost than just specifying one ideology alone, and that may damage the political party that is trying to put these rules into place. 
With that in mind, I'll leave those issues up in the air for now, because I ultimately believe that these practices should be banned as a whole, instead of just trying to specify one instance of it happening. However, a broader political strategy looking explicitly to take power and to use it in order to rout out insular influences may be successful as well. However, the thing underlying each of these strategies is that it involves coordination and it involves knowledge. It involves people understanding the incentives at play and being able to combat them. If there's one thing that this podcast does, I would hope that it's that. So if you want to see a broader recognition of these ideas, if you want to see them being executed and put into practice and having a visible effect in your lives, then we're going to need to spread the word. What that means is pretty easy. Sharing on social media, recommending it to a friend, your own endorsement is as valuable to me and to the people who you might be helping as anything else. And as I've talked about repeatedly on end, the power of network effects is never to be underestimated. The friend who you share to may share to two of their friends who shares to two of their friends, and before you know it, one action that you've taken can create the change that you want to see. And if you do that, thank you.